together with you folks. I thought for a while this past week I was back in Canada. But, uh, hey, I was something else. It's, uh, for those of you who are struggling with cabin fever and were able to dig out, we're glad that you're here. We trust that God will bless us in our fellowship. There's also been a, a heavy component to this week. There's been some loss within the body of Christ. To remember, uh, Dawn has lost her father, Lucy, her brother. Nicole Wagner's father has passed. Darcy has lost uh, Anne, who's almost a mom to her. And so, in and amidst our fellowship, there is sorrow and heaviness. And it's great to be able to come together and share the burden that we have and the affection that we have for each other. So, I trust that you as the church family will be gracious in weeping with those who weep rejoicing with those who rejoice as part of our body life here. If you have your scriptures, would you turn with me to the book of Philemon, please? It's the little epistle, little postcard of truth that's situated after Titus, before Hebrews. After Titus, before Hebrews. And I'm going to read together with you verses 1 through 7 as we begin this morning. Philemon, verse 1. Through seven, just 25 verses. It begins Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved friend and fellow laborer, to the beloved Athea, Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God, making mention of you always in my prayers, hearing of your love and faith which you have towards the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. That the sharing of your faith may become effective by the acknowledgement of every good thing which is in you, in Christ Jesus. We have great joy and consolation in your love. Across the hearts of the saints have been refreshed by you, brother. This is God's word. Father, come now and help us. I pray, Lord, for a delicious stillness of soul and spirit. Some who are here have heavy hearts. And Father, I pray for your comforting grace. In the midst of loss and separation, Lord, I pray that you would pour out mercy and comfort. We're mindful, Lord God, that we're not in the land of the living, moving towards the land of the dying, but that we're in the land of the dying, moving towards the land of the living. So us, Lord God, who lost family members, keenly sensed the concept of pilgrimage this week. Come, Lord, and strengthen and stabilize. Help us to be faithful and loving and caring for and coming alongside. Father, we also pray for those of us Lord, who are struggling in other areas, physical, financial, social, spiritual, come and be for us who you are, the great God who sees our needs and who is capable of meeting all of them. Father, we would say, along with those that have gone before us, help thou my unbelief for those of us struggling to trust and rest and hope. Father, come and fill us with a confidence in you, one that consumes us and controls us. Father, I pray you bless us now as we have gathered around your word. 
feed our hearts and souls, that you prepare our hearts as the family gathers around the table that is yours, that you've set for us. We pray that you strengthen us on the inside. Though our outward person is perishing, Lord, I pray that your people congregating here, that our inner person would be renewed day by day by day. Come now, Lord God, and help us be best. In the strong name of Jesus, who has loved us first and best. Amen. Man was bitten by a dog that was later discovered to have rabies. The man was rushed to the hospital. He was tested. It was discovered that he had, in fact, contracted rabies. At this time, there was no medical cure, and so the doctor came to the man. He was faced with a difficult task of telling him that he was going to die. The doctor said that he would try to make him as comfortable as he could be, but he didn't want to give him false hope. He encouraged the infected man to put his affairs in order in view of what was to be the inevitable. After hearing the news, the dying man slumped back in his bed shocked. Then after a period of time, rallied enough to ask for pen and paper. As soon as he got the supplies, he started writing vigorously. Sometime later, the doctor came back to the room and was surprised to see the man was still writing vigorously. The doctor commented, saying, I'm glad that you're working on your will, to which the man replied, Hey, Doc, I'm not working on my will. This is a list of people I'm going to bite before I die. Sadly, some of us have a list of people we're going to bite before we die. I'm not talking literal, but figuratively. There's this grouping of people, maybe in our hearts, and we have a list. Not probably on paper, that would be heretical. But we have a list of people who have misjudged us, misused us, mistreated us. The account is still unsettled in our mind. Because we have been wrong, or duped, or hurt, or lied to, we feel justified in nursing this bitterness. Tragically, this is a toxic comment that poisons our spirits and weakens our souls. The joy of the Lord is far from us. The result of that kind of bitterness is divided hearts, divided homes, churches, missions, marriages, business. Anger rules beneath the surface. One wit describes it this way. My therapist says that I have a preoccupation with vengeance. Well, we'll just see about that. We feel those kinds of emotions. That's what it's like to be terminally human. If that's the case, this little postcard of truth is good medicine. This is a mighty antidote to the disease of relationships that affects and influences far too many of us. These 25 verses, we have a powerful lesson on forgiveness. You'll notice even as I read the few verses in the beginning that this
this is addressed to Philemon and to the church in his house. The wonderful reality of forgiveness is that it is both personal and it is general. And by that, I simply mean this. When we are reconciled to one another as individuals, it affects our community. Have you ever noticed you've come into a room, maybe, and there's been this tension that you almost felt was palpable? There was a tension that it seemed as though you could cut it with a knife. Well, that's because probably there's a lack of forgiveness. Maybe there's some seething bitterness that needs to be addressed. But how glorious when we are reconciled personally in the way that we relate to one another. With the kind of affection that God had said we are to have for each other. Philemon must learn it. Those attending the church in his house must learn it. Dear friends gathering here this morning, we must learn it as well. Philemon meets us on a personal level, but ultimately it is truth for our entire community of faith. We give you an overview of the plot that's given to us in these 25 verses, so from a fairly high altitude. After his shipwreck on Malta, which was last week in Acts 27. The Apostle Paul finds his way to Rome. There he is as a prisoner in the providence of God. He is brought into connection with a, a runaway slave named Onesimus. In the glorious providences and the graces of God, Paul becomes the spiritual father of Onesimus, the runaway slave. Onesimus has run away from the household of Philemon who, in fact, Paul has led to the Lord back in the city of Colossae. Interestingly, here in Rome, Onesimus is really twice freed on a certain level. He is reconciled first to God, and he's going to be reconciled to Philemon. But we have in Philemon this personal letter that the Apostle Paul writes back to Philemon that will attend to his reintroduction to Philemon. As Philemon meets Onesimus for the first time, as Onesimus goes back to face the music, you realize that this will serve as a reintroduction. So it's intensely personal, but it's not just between Philemon and Onesimus. It's to the entire church meeting in this house church in Colossae. There are some questions that this little epistle addresses that I think are very helpful for us as a church family. Questions like, how do we find common ground when there is a relational breakdown? How do we find common ground when there is a relational breakdown? He said, she said, I don't know what to say. How do we come back to basics? How does true, what does true forgiveness look like in the shadow of Christ's cross? In recognizing how much we have been forgiven, how does that affect and influence the way that we relate to each other? Thirdly, why is gospel reconciliation so essential in the life and the warp and the woof of the local church. And so, these are some of the questions, hopefully, the grace of God will address over the next few weeks together. Well, let's do our homework. I'm going to lay out for you just two markers this morning as we deal with the text. Just two markers. 
that hopefully will help us navigate our way through this glorious little postcard. First of all, there is these classic characters that are involved in the drama that's working its way out. I've given you just an overview, but let's look in more detail at those that are laid out for us in the text. You'll notice, first of all, because there are three main characters that will slide across the stage in this drama. The first character is the writer, Paul. And it begins in verse 1, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, first Timothy's playing the secondary role. So the writer is very typical Pauline introduction. His name is Paul. Ancient letters typically started with the name of the one that was writing, which is interesting because I, I can't help but wonder that as this letter is received by Philemon, if his heart didn't quicken in recognizing, well, this is my spiritual father. This is that pioneering missionary who brought that glorious message of the gospel into our city, and God rose up from within the hearts of those there, this gathering of called out ones, the church at Colossae. I, I must admit that when I get a letter, I'm very interested in who sent the letter to me. If it came from Publisher's House Clearing or something like that, or if it's another advertisement, it's like, no thank you. But if it's some name that I recognize, particularly in which there is rapport and relationship with, well, you read that differently. That gets treated differently. Paul is not only a great missionary apostle. Paul, for Philemon, is his friend. He is the founder of the church. He's his spiritual father. We might say it this way. They have history together. And that makes all the difference in the world. You'll notice as well that Paul identifies himself as a prisoner of Christ Jesus in verse 1. Interesting, he does not use his apostleship here. In fact, he'll use prisoner not one, two, three, but five times in just 25 verses. Paul will note this connection with Onesimus in saying that he's a prisoner. Now, Paul does not say, I'm a prisoner of Rome. Paul does not say, I'm a prisoner of bad circumstances. He does not say, I'm a prisoner of religious hierarchy, which have set themselves in array against me in my message. Paul, in fact, interestingly, calls himself a prisoner of Christ Jesus, which is glorious because he realizes that this is his badge, this is his commission for ministry. Whitefoot puts it this way, and I find it helpful. He says, They were not shackles which self had riveted, but a chain with which Christ had invested him. Thus they were a badge of office. So Paul's not there, rubbing his hands together, ticked off, bummed out, because he's got chains attached to him, or because he's a prisoner. Although he sees it as God commissioning him in this particular place for this particular season of ministry. Philemon, interestingly, is written from the same place that the prisoner of Jesus Christ, Paul, wrote Philippians, Colossians, and Ephesians. Therefore, we would call Philemon a prison epistle. That's interesting that he calls himself a prisoner because he's going to lend his heart to Philemon. He wants to address Philemon's heart, Philemon's affection, Philemon's compassion quotient. He's leaning towards him as one who is being restrained by the, by the gracious king, King Jesus, but he also wants Philemon to realize that he's under the same kind of constraint. 
And so there's a point of connection here. He speaks throughout the epistle tenderly and personally and warmly and compassionately. He's speaking as to a friend. This is good information for us as we think about the early church relationships because some of us struggle in our relationship to one another in the here and now. Do you realize what Paul is doing here? He's making this connection between Christ and the church, between the relationship that he has with Philemon and the relationship that they have together at the foot of the cross, which is brother to brother. He's going to appeal to his love. They are both slaves of the gracious master, Jesus Christ. So that's the writer Paul in verse 1. Later in the verse, also in verse 1, it says to Philemon, our beloved friend and fellow laborer. So again, he's connecting here heart to heart, not merely mind to mind. Verse 2 goes on, it says to the beloved Athea, Archippus, probably his wife, probably Philemon's wife was Athea. We won't speak um, dogmatically of that, but it's probable. And then Archippus, probably the son of Philemon. Then it goes on, it says, and to the church in your house. The church in your house. Philemon, probably a wealthy man. If you have a church in your house, you probably have some resources. This is the only one of the prison letters that are addressed uh, to an individual. Colossae was probably something of a smaller-sized town. This is probably a smaller-sized church. Nevertheless, it's interesting that it's addressed not just to Philemon, but those that were able to gather together week by week and worship and learn of the coming king. Interesting, many of the early Christians in the Roman Empire were slaves. We would call them today something of indentured servants. If you had gotten into a bad place financially, you might sell yourself into slavery in order to cover or pay for the debt. And we deduce from the text that Philemon is probably wealthy to be able to host this setting. Church buildings, this is just a little historical nugget because I'm a nerd. Church buildings did not start until the third century. You, you got a lengthy period of time before they're meeting anywhere else but in private homes. The early norm for the early church was in homes, and that is the norm, interestingly, in many parts of the world even today. You understand that there's nothing sacrosanct about this building. The sacred thing meeting together in here is us, the church of Jesus Christ. The oldest known church was found in eastern Syria, a place called Dora Europas. It dates back to 232 A.D. You'll want to jot that down for future reference. We've got two main players thus far. We've got Paul, and then we've got Philemon, the letter to one, the letter to which it is addressed. And then thirdly, we have the subject of this. We've got to skip to verse 10 to notice, but you'll notice the subject of the entire little epistle, I appeal to you for my son, Onesimus, whom I have begotten while in my chains. So we have the third and final character in this glorious drama. And when you read and reread this little book of Philemon, there are great things that surface, certainly the sovereignty of God, a submission, slavery, salvation, all of them weighty. But I think the overarching theme of the book of Philemon has to be considered as forgiveness or reconciliation or restoration of relationship. 
This is the story of two Christian men finding common ground. Broken trust is repaired. Reconciliation literally grips from the text. So this letter is dated around 60 A.D. You realize that this occurred sometimes, that, that this, this meeting between Paul and Philemon probably occurred sometime earlier during Paul's ministry in and around Ephesus. Paul will minister in and around Ephesus for around three years. But the subject is Onesimus. I, I, I love the providences of God that are on display here. Providence is when God is working and he chooses to remain anonymous on a certain level. But think about it. Here's a man who, who runs away from Philemon Colossae. And you want to run away and get lost. Where do you go? Well, you find a crowd. And his plan is, I'm going to go get, get lost in the crowd. I'm going to go to the biggest, most influential city around me and just become a face in this mass of people. Um, they, they suggest, some of the commentators that I read, they suggest that the population of Rome at this point is around 860,000 people. So we're moving towards a million people in this ancient place. And Onesimus' plan is, I'm going to run away from this guy. Um, he probably took something with him, and that will come out later in the text. I'm going to run away and just be a face in the crowd. But what's so glorious about this is that with God, there is nowhere to run and there is nowhere to hide. And wouldn't you know it, who is it in 860,000 people that Onesimus bumps into? Paul. I mean, you can't make this up. The same Paul who led Philemon to the Lord is the one that God brings together in Rome with Onesimus, the runaway. Now, it's a dangerous thing to be a runaway in ancient Rome. Should he be recaptured? One of the punishments for being a fugitive slave was that they took a hot brand of iron and they burned it into your forehead, F, for fugitizers. That was one of the things that could have occurred in Onesimus' life. There's also a historical record of runaway slaves being crucified to serve them as an example. Don't try that. Don't try that. And so you've got this tension as Onesimus runs away and there he is captured by the grace of God. And it's a point of connection for us. Because on a certain level, as we recount in our minds our own testimonies, maybe you were running away from God. Maybe you were a fugitive and God caught you and brought you to himself with cords of love and affection. You heard the gospel. God broke into your heart. God broke you down and brought you savingly to your savingly to himself. That's the glory of the gospel. But this third subject is Onesimus. Interestingly, his name, Onesimus, means profitable. He had not been very profitable. And now, interestingly, by the grace of God, he's going to become Profitable. He becomes a helper to Paul, all the while knowing that restitution must be made, forgiveness must be sought. This issue has to be dealt with. This story, you'll notice, does not end at conversion. The story goes beyond that. We don't go, Scripture doesn't tell us to go and make converts. Scripture tells us to go and make disciples. Those who look like, sound like, act like Jesus. 
That's the plan. You'll notice here that even as Paul leans towards Philemon and addresses the issues of his heart and empathy and compassion and things like that, you recognize that what Paul is asking Philemon to do is act like God. Act like his creator. Act like his savior. We have these glorious verses in Scripture way back in the book of Exodus, chapter 34, as the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments are, give, are given. Exodus 34, 6 and 7, God identifies himself this way. He says, and the Lord passed by before him, that's Moses, and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. When God identifies himself, he says, I am a God of forgiveness. This is who I am. Later, Solomon in Proverbs 19.11, it is a man's glory to pass over or to overlook a transgression. And I wrote this down. Man is never more like God than when he forgives. So, dear friends, is there a list that needs to be addressed? Are there names and faces that need to be addressed? You, you, you see from Scripture that when, when God forgives, He's showing His supreme majesty in being able to forgive. Having been offended far more than we could ever be offended. That's why we hear Christ cry out from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It is glory in that. I was thinking of my first pastor, Dr. Bill Randolph, a guest president of Lancaster Bible College. When I was a little boy attending Chelton Baptist Church, and I remember my mom and dad telling me the story of, of Pastor Randolph's life. He was from a, a, a small southern rural community. His father was a local sheriff. His father was killed by a drunk who shot him. Never forget hearing how my mom and dad told me that Dr. Randolph, Pastor Randolph, was so interested in this man's soul that he went to jail where this man was and shared the gospel with him. And even as a little boy, I can remember that shaking my, that shaking up my little mind and heart. Why did you do that? Somebody hurts my dad? Somebody does that? That's the glory of God's forgiveness. That's the glory of God's grace. Throughout the Bible, the theme of forgiveness is obviously and overtly emphasized. That's what makes the story of, of the prodigal so potent. This son who's, who's so icky and so selfish, and he runs away, and he spends his inheritance on riotous living, hoping that his father was dead. And then from the pig pen, coming to his senses in brokenness, recognizing finally his rebellion and sin, and beginning to make his way back towards the father, and there the father waiting. And as I've mentioned before, ancient Middle Eastern men do not run. That is considered grievously uncool and uncouth in that culture. And yet to see the father who must have had to yank up his, the, the, the edges of his robe to be able to run to his son, 
forgiven so much ought to forgive others. And when we refuse to forgive others, we are distancing ourselves from the very character of God. When I was a teenager, I wrote the fly leaf in my Bible, a quote from W.B. Knight that I've never forgotten. He who does not forgive others burns before him the bridge of God's forgiveness. It's a powerful little statement. You're holding on to something, maybe you're bitter, you're frustrated, you're angry about something, the account is yet unsettled. Well, the reality of God's word is that you are called to forgive. You are called to love. You are called to have a merciful affection towards one another. Why? What makes that possible? The cross makes that possible. Calvary makes that possible. We understand how much we've been forgiven. Forgiveness is an opportunity to be reconciled. It's an opportunity for a life together instead of an ongoing death together and separation together. Forgiveness has a kind of creative power that moves us past a moment of sin and pain and unshackles us. It steps together, it sets off a new chain of reactions in terms of relationship. So those are the characters. Paul, Philemon, Onesimus, I want to conclude, I, I promise point two will be much quicker than point one. But secondly and finally, you'll notice the commendation in verses three to seven. As Paul pens this letter that will prepare the, the, uh, the stage for Onesimus' re-entry into Philemon's orbit, you'll notice in verses three to seven, the one that is spoken of here, this commendation, this description of Philemon. You notice in verse 3 that the common grace is the grace of God, grace and peace be from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. There is the great peacemaker. This all occurs in the shadow of the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then in verse 4, you'll notice it says, I thank my God, making mention you always in my prayers. It's not just that Paul has had Philemon on his heart or his mind, it's that he's been on his prayer list. One of the things that I have found helpful over the years, and I'm speaking personally here, is that if I'm having a problem with a person, start praying for them. Start praying for them. Take them to the throne of grace. Plead with God for their blessing and their flourishing. Plead with God for their change in direction, maybe. Paul's affection for Philemon is that he prays incessantly. He's taking him to the throne of grace. And then in verse 5, you'll notice... Paul has heard of Philemon's ongoing testimony. He's heard of his love and his faith. You'll notice that it's a love and faith that he has towards the Lord Jesus and towards all the saints. And I want to readdress an issue that I mentioned a few uh, several weeks ago now. Simply this. You cannot say that you are getting along well with God if you don't like other people. You, you just can't. It, 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 is, it is a mutually exclusive situation. You can't say, I love Jesus, I love God, I just don't like his people, or those people, or something like that. It just does not work. 
one of the sure markers that your relationship with God is good is that your relationship with people as well is good. That's a, that's a critical part of body life and relational life. You'll notice that this is an affection for the Lord Jesus and towards all the saints. You can circle that word, all. I could say I have an affection for some of the saints. And you can say I have an affection for some of the saints too. The issue is having affection for all of the saints. There is this glorious component to the Christian life that challenges us. We know that we're in way over our heads apart from his help. Yet the glory here is that as Paul commends this man, he knows that Philemon has an ongoing testimony. He knows how much he has been forgiven. And so Philemon is not the kind of guy that's going to strain at gnats because he knows how much sin Jesus has eaten for him. And I'm referencing here the last sin eater by Francine Rivers, another good read. Paul begins to speak here to the character of Christ. And what's key to the character of Christ and the character of Philemon is that they're gloriously being intermingled. God has been kind to Philemon, and so because God has been kind to Philemon, Philemon has the ability to be kind as well. Looking for ways to describe him, you might say it this way, Philemon has something in his tank. Philemon has oil in his lamp. Philemon has a reservoir of resources that God has given to him. All of this is good news because it reminds us that we're capable and we're able of doing what we think is impossible, which is to forgive other people. And you notice it goes on in verse 6. It talks about sharing of your faith, that it would become effective by the acknowledgement of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. Oh, for sure, God has been pouring into Philemon mercy and grace, and so from Philemon can pour out of him mercy and grace. Paul is appealing to Philemon to forgive Onesimus, and he has every indication that Philemon has the ability to do just that. Why is that? Because Philemon possesses the character of Jesus Christ. And just as he has been lavishly cared for by Jesus, he will be able to lavishly care for others. You'll notice finally in verse 7, Paul, in expectation of how this is going to go down, he says, For we have great joy and consolation in your love, because the heart of the saints have been refreshed by you, brother. Wow. Philemon is the kind of man who refreshes the saints. And I looked that word up again today, makes whole. The saints provide for the saints, provides consolation and ease, is effective in caring for their needs. The, the glory here is that Philemon has the ability because he's refreshed saints in the past to refresh saints in the future. That's why we pray, forgive us our trespasses and we, as we forgive those who trespass against us. That's why we read passages that blow our minds away, like in Matthew chapter 5, blessed are the merciful. They shall obtain mercy. Or Ephesians 4.32, be kind to another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as, as God in Christ also has forgiven you. And finally, Colossians 3.13, this is good body life for us, folks, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. 
a very clear idea that God is a forgiving God. And that he is determined that we would be a forgiving people as we live out the life of Christ, as we take on the character of Christ, as we put on this garment of righteousness. This is what it looks like. Thomas Watson, the Puritan, many years ago, makes a very interesting statement. He says, we need not climb up into heaven to see whether our sins are forgiven. He says, let us look into our hearts and see if we can forgive others. If we can, we need not doubt that God has forgiven us. Did you get that? You want to know about assurance? You want to know if you belong to the king? You want to know if your life has been translated from death into life and from darkness into light? You want to know if your sins have been forgiven and covered? Can you forgive? Do you forgive those who have offended you? If you refuse to forgive, you've placed yourself in a position to be chastened by God who loves you too much to let you get away. Book of Philemon describes real people in a real setting with a real need for forgiveness. It's interesting because we have no sense, no sense at all, that Philemon is furiously writing on a list of people to bite. He's just looking for an opportunity to forgive. There's a Spanish story about a father and a son who had become estranged. The son ran away, and the father set out to find him. He searched for him for months, all to no avail. Finally, in a last desperate attempt to locate his son, he took out an ad in a paper in Madrid. The ad read simply this, Dear Paco, meet me in front of the, this newspaper office at noon on Saturday. All is forgiven. I love you, your father. That Saturday, 800 Pacos showed up looking for forgiveness and love from the Father. You understand, don't you folks, that that's a part of who we are, that's a part of our need in coming to Jesus Christ, to have this old account once and for all, forever settled. And then once it is settled, it is this glorious ability that he gives to us to forgive each other, to love each other, to be reconciled to one another. I've often compared the meaning of the, the local church as kind of a gathering sometimes of porcupines, you get prickles and stings, as one else has prickles and stings. And it's this glorious plan of God to bring us all together and pack us in nice and close and tight. And there, we have to ask for forgiveness. And we have to extend forgiveness, because that's God's plan. The great grace of God that's worked in our lives is that He uses the local church to grow us and sanctify us and mature us in the character. Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for our time together in your word. Thank you, Lord God, for this brief postcard. I pray that it would do its special work. For those of us that have struggled, are struggling, Father, we pray that you would strengthen our hands and our hearts. That we need to, to feel the fresh weight of conviction that, Lord, we're not acting like you. And that should not be there needs to be correction, and we would plead for it even this day. I'm mindful of the verse that talks about leaving our gift at the altar and making it right with our brother. Father, I pray that you would bind us together in a kind of glorious spiritual unity, not a fake one, not a mandated one, not a legislative one, but a real one. 
Father, that we would love one another as we have been loved. Help us, Lord God, to this end, to prepare our hearts for a few quiet moments from the table. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Amen. Well, let's uh, 